About a month or so ago, I was um, stopped at a traffic light, and the car in front of me, the first thing I remembered is um, that it was just a really, really nice car. And I really don't care much about cars. I'm not a car person, but this was a really nice car. It was like a, looked like a really recent Mercedes-Benz or something. And I think I noticed it because right next to the Benz uh, insignia on the back trunk, there was, it said something, something cancer center. And then right next to that, it said, for patient use only. And I thought, well, that's kind of a nice thing, you know. Um, cancer has touched so many of our lives, some of us individually here, so many of our families. I thought maybe this is how this particular cancer center takes their people to treatments. It gives them an opportunity to just feel like maybe in the midst of having to deal with a lot of pain and struggle that, you know, maybe they're giving a little ride in the lap of luxury. And then I got a little bit more fanciful with it. I thought maybe almost sort of like, um, remember the movie Bucket List? You know, you've heard that expression, Bucket List? And I think actually Morgan Freeman and Jack Nicholson in that movie, they were both dying of cancer. And it was a list of things that they wanted to do before they died. And I thought, okay, you know, it is so difficult for so many people to have to live with and battle cancer. There's so much that really is challenging on the body, on the soul. And I thought maybe that insignia for patient use only, that maybe what they do is they drive the patients to a particular track someplace and just says, here, take this Mercedes and go nuts. Drive as fast as you want to. Have as much fun as you can. We know that you're dealing with difficult stuff. Just take it and run with it. Put the pedal down. Enjoy it. Probably for insurance purposes, they did not do that. But I'd like to imagine that they did. But then as I was sitting there for a while, this went through my head in about 15 seconds. There was that deeper thing that appealed to me. The phrase, for patient use only. Think about it. Not patient as in noun. For use with patience only. Stillness. Called my attention for just a second that maybe the person riding in that car in front of me was battling for their very life. I had better be patient with them. And actually it called my attention to all the other cars around me that maybe, although... They weren't riding in the car that said cancer center. It made me think about what they were battling as well, too. To look around and think, wow, them for patient use only. Calm down. When I think about this time of the year, if I could affix a warning sticker to the December holidays, it would say this, for patient use only. There is such a frenzy at this time of the year for so many people. I think the origins of this lie in something that really is quite deep and spiritual and true. For many of you who grew up in a Christian tradition, you know that this is the Advent season. And Advent is normally understood as a time of waiting, as a time of expectation, as a time of openness to what is to come. In the traditional Christian understanding, it's the birth of Jesus. But I think there's even a deeper meaning Beyond that, beyond any doctrine, it is just this sense at this time of the year, as the year starts to shift over, as the year starts to reset, be expectant, be awake. Too often, though, this kind of expectation gets turned into like the kids in the back seat saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? This is the for patient use only part of the December holidays. I think of the impatience of those stories that you see every year. And so far, I have not seen one. 
doesn't mean it didn't happen. Someone getting trampled at four o'clock in the morning when those Black Friday big box stores open. They just open the doors and the people spill in. And I just wonder what it would be to put right there for patient use only people. Calm down. That's the immature kind of expectation. The mature sense, though, is all about having patience. Too often at this time of the year, I hear people voicing, whether it's about gifts or parties or the work that they're doing, the kinds of hopes that something big is going to happen or some big change might happen or some resolution that they're starting to think of now will really come true right after the first of the year comes along. Sometimes we want that expectation too badly because we think that we will change eventually then someday when that big thing happens. But for patient use only means to listen to the words of Henry David Thoreau, one of our great teachers who said, all change is a miracle to contemplate. But change is a miracle which is taking place every single instant. It is not something just beyond our sight. It is right here and right now. When we live with this kind of spirit for patient use only, we can recognize the change that is right here in our midst and we don't have to think about the big change that's going to change everything for us that might or might not happen. Last week when I talked about welcoming darkness and welcoming light at this time of the year, I talked about hospitality, just making ourselves welcome. Welcome to the light and the darkness within us. Welcome to the light and darkness around us. Patience deepens that and says the light and the darkness, we can find a home within ourselves for what is truly here within our lives, the light and the shadow. Pay attention to it, not fearfully avoiding the darkness that we think will trip us up and not anxiously running towards the light which we think will save us. One of the common things at this time of the year, and perhaps some of you are finding yourself in this place right now, is struggling with whether it's seasonal affective disorder or depression or sadness because this time of the year reminds you of the people past who are no longer here or you think on your life as the year is about to change and you are thinking, well, is this the life that I was really meant to live? It's actually more true that more people get depressed in springtime than in Christmas time. Do you know that? It's actually sort of what I call the April is the cruelest month phenomenon. T.S. Eliot's words. But it's kind of like when springtime comes around and everything seems to be blooming around us, but something doesn't seem to be blooming within us. For so many people, that is too great a burden to bear. But at this time of the year, I do see more depression. I do perceive more anxiety with one other particular thing that I think makes it very difficult. A lot of people also saying to themselves if they feel sad, if they feel despair, if they feel depressed, saying something else. I shouldn't be feeling this way. There is something wrong with me that I am feeling despair. There is something wrong with me that I am feeling depressed or sad. Or they think, perhaps spying another person's life that appears so much better than their own, they think. I should be feeling that way. I should be feeling good. That's that kind of enforced jolliness of the holidays that hopefully all of us can get away from. This kind of moral judgment of ourselves when we are depressed, it's kind of like, it's kind of like seeing a person with 200 pounds on their back and they're struggling to get along. And we say, here, 
I'm going to give you an extra 50 pounds to put on your back as well, too. That's what our moral judgments of ourselves are like when we are depressed. And we just won't simply allow ourselves to feel how we feel. One of the first things I do when I counsel people who are depressed, particularly this time of the year, particularly when there is so much attention to wants, so much attention to what we don't have, so much attention to, at times, buying or experiencing or partying or cramming as much experience into ourselves so we think that will make us happy. The first thing I counsel is patience. Can you simply just allow yourself to feel what you feel? Without judgment, without a sense that it should or has to be any different, but simply can you allow yourself to feel loss, absence, grief, sadness, depression? This is where patient use only means the deepest kindness we can extend to ourselves and not making it worse for ourselves by feeling we should be feeling so much better and that happiness, unless we are feeling it exactly in the way that we perceive, well, then somehow we're missing out on life. I think there's a different way to approach, especially this time of the year. Paul Simon, the great singer and writer, he's its prophet or one of them. Y'all know these words. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. And I say with there, that little preposition makes all the difference. Stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that later. American Zen teacher Charlotte Beck, she talks about that, especially in times of difficulty, we all can. She, it's a great image, and I would, I would do it right now, except I would fall over. But just imagine that I'm doing it. She talks about spinning off. Spinning off, spinning away, the refusal to see where we are in this life. Spin off and spin off and spin off. It is the opposite of having patience with ourselves. As Paul Simon said, almost to befriend the darkness. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Just to listen. Just to give ourselves the grace of listening to what is there in our lives in that moment, even when we are struggling. But it can work the opposite way as well, too. We can feel that this call to lightness, to joy, to happiness is an obligation. We can feel that the good things we think in our lives that are there, well, we have to grasp those things as hard as we can. This past week, I read this great quote from the mystical poet Rumi. It is so perfect for these December holidays. It is so perfect for patient use only. He wrote, Observe the wonders as they occur around you, but do not claim them. Feel the artistry moving through you and be silent. Do not claim the wonders, but observe them. The first night that I was in college and stayed up all night reading a book, I read a book I'm not sure they read anymore in college right now. And by the way, as studious, I'd like to pretend I still sort of am these days. I was not that way my first year in college. I did a lot of staying up all night, but not a lot of it was for reading books. I read Sister Carrie, all 500 pages by Theodore Dreiser in one night. Sister Carrie, for those of you who don't know it, and I don't imagine a lot of you do, it's not read all that frequently anymore. It's the story of a young woman named Carrie who wants so much out of life. She wants the beautiful things. She's from a very humble beginning. She goes to Chicago and then eventually to New York. She has a series of love affairs. Eventually she becomes a big Broadway actress. Each time trying to get to that place of believing that the beautiful things that eventually she does possess will make her happy. 
the beautiful things, the light things, the things that signify what it is to have what we think very often we want. It is a judgment many ways over a hundred years ago on that first gilded age, as I think many of us are wrestling right now after this gilded age in which too many of us, and I include myself in this, confused beautiful things with beautiful being and thought that wealth itself could speak for itself and it never does. At the end of Sister Carrie, in page after page after page, we see that the story is not going to end happily, but it is ending meaningfully. In the final image, Carrie sits in her rocking chair, taking a walk up Broadway in the 1900s, trying to find something in someone's face that will truly betoken true kindness and true grace. She doesn't find it. And perhaps it was my 18-year-old self that really longed for another person's life that could recognize in these words from Theodore Dreiser. He wrote, it is not the evil things, but so often it is longing for that which is better that more often misdirects the steps of those who err. He didn't have this phrase to put it in right now, but in our age we would say that Carrie has learned the futility of retail therapy. She has learned that we cannot fill the deep, soulful places within ourselves just with the beautiful things. Whatever our means are of that quick high. It's a real thing, by the way, retail therapy. When you buy something you really want, I felt this way about a year ago when that 47-inch HDTV arrived at my house. I felt that way. I still like it. There's nothing wrong with it. And by the way, I was happy this past week to see that the reports of, you know, shopping were up. I don't want people to be miserable. I want people to have jobs. I'm actually a capitalist. This is not about the stuff. This is about our attitude towards the stuff in which we would expect it to fill places within us that stuff can never fill. The problem with any kind of retail therapy or any kind of drinking or drugging or any kind of illusory chasing of another relationship we think will make us happy and entirely disregard where we are right now is that those kinds of things are not sustainable. We talk about, as one of our core beliefs here in Wellsprings, that unhealthy relationships, materialism, or substance abuse lead us only to despair and loneliness, and that truly it is a deep, honest, growing spiritual life that answers our thirst for fulfillment. This is related to our mission our mission to be charged for the charge of the soul because there are many ways in this life to get cheap charges. There are. I will tell you, leave here today, just go out and buy something you really want. It'll make you feel really good for a while. And go ahead and do it if that's what you want to do. I'm not telling you not to buy it, but we got to be wary. We got to be wary to know that truly that high is not sustainable. Last week, I mentioned the word contemplative when talking about building and recognizing within ourselves the open spaces, affirming our inherent strength, that non-arrogant, non-bragging strength that allows us simply to recognize that as tense and as tight as we might feel from time to time, that there are deeper reserves within us of true grace and true grit. This past week I read um, an interview with the Dalai Lama's interpreter. 
And he said too often in the West there are mistaken understandings of what meditation is supposed to do. He said meditation is not about sitting and emptying your mind. He says the true meaning of meditation or contemplative practice are actually two words, the Sanskrit word for meditation and the Tibetan word. One means familiarity and the other means cultivation. Any practice in which we are regularly returning to ourselves means to cultivate familiarity with our lives. That cannot be ordered up for any of us like a pay-per-view movie. That familiarity, that cultivation comes day after day after day when we pay attention to who we are, the light and the dark together. I mentioned before that that word with in Sounds of Silence by Paul Simon by Simon and Garfunkel, it's important. It was that word with that changed my entire relationship to the experience of prayer. I grew up in a culture, as many of us did, in which prayer was to something or for something. It was either get me out of this or give me something I want. I heard a really immature expression of the kind of praying to this past week. If any of you are football fans, there was a game last week that really shouldn't have happened. It was the Pittsburgh Steelers versus the Buffalo Bills. The Steelers are a fantastic team, a really good team. The Bills, well, are not. This game went into overtime. The Bills quarterback dropped back for a pass. Ryan Fitzpatrick, his name is, and he sailed an absolutely beautiful, arcing, gorgeous, should have been the end of the game, touchdown pass in overtime to a guy named Steve Johnson. He had it right in his hands, and then it wasn't. They didn't win the game. The Steelers did. There was so much attention on Steve Johnson after, after the game. And then on Monday, he tweeted, accusing God, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? That's the idea in some ways of a two. You know, there's a being up there who controls our lives and I guess takes enough interest to... Those poor Buffalo Bills, they must be the NFL's version of Job. Sort of take them out, single them out. Sometimes in praying for, I still do it from time to time. But it makes our spirituality dependent and our relationship with that deepest part of ourselves. It makes it dependent upon outcomes. When I started to learn what it was like to pray with rather than for, or rather than two, I recognized what it was to have everyday spirituality. Because it is all about patience. Patience about what is here, right here, right now. The light and the shadow, all of it together. Some of us call it namaste. The Quakers call it the inner light. Whatever it is, we are born with it. It is a native part of who we are. It is not something that someday we would hope to get is the recognition of the fullness of who we are right here in this very moment. I believe it is already here. I believe we are born with it. But if we try to segment our lives up, if we try to say, well, it's only the light that is the divine and the shadow is what I have to race through as quickly as we can, we will not know what it is to pray with the whole of our lives. There's a woman named Brene Brown. She did one of these TEDx talks, if you know those, the TED Talks. I'm going to show part of it probably in the months to come or the months to come. It was in Kansas City in Houston. She's a social work professor, and she has done research over the years, a lot of research about what she calls the costs, the deep moral and spiritual costs of wanting to be invulnerable, 
of wanting to be so strong that we admit that nothing can touch us. She says we make one particular mistake in this. She says we cannot selectively numb ourselves. She has seen this over and over and over again in her research. People who try to numb themselves to the darkness, people who try to numb themselves to difficult emotions, people who try to numb themselves to the stuff that they just don't like. She says we're not built that way. If we selectively numb ourselves to the stuff we don't like about ourselves, we will also be numbing ourselves to the capacity for light and joy and peace and grace. It is one of the truisms, it's almost a cliche, that as deep as sorrow can enter into us, so true can joy enter into us as well. When we do not numb ourselves, I think this is how... Finally, we can equip ourselves to bring light, our light, with us to another person's darkness and into their shadows. This past week, many of you know, it was World AIDS Day on December the 1st. And I thought about the friends and the former seminarians and the people I've worked with over the years who have lost their lives to that disease. And the many people I know who are living, living beautiful, long lives that they never thought they would have with that disease. The story I want to tell you is from a much earlier time than now, 1983, 1984, when there was, they weren't even sure a cause, when there certainly was nothing like any, not the cure, but the kinds of things that extend life so much for people who are living with a life sentence of HIV and AIDS these days. It's a story that my chaplaincy supervisor told us in the summer of 1996. One day when he was doing his chaplaincy rounds, he went into the room of a young man, who had had no visitors for well over a week. He was 22 years old and dying of what they had just learned to call AIDS. And this young man was furious. He almost kicked seeing the chaplain's collar out of the room because every authority figure, every relationship that he had in his life had betrayed him. The chaplain asked him, can I just stay here and listen to you? It's all right if I sit down. And the young man told him about being kicked out of his house when he was 18. And he told him about being kicked out of the house he was sharing with his partner after he was sick. And everyone was scared of him. Even his friends wouldn't come to see him. He talked about how he was so angry with God that he was being allowed to die in this miserable, lonely way. And the chaplain just listened just listened. There's no way to tell this young man dying at 22 years of age, don't worry, be happy. There's no way to share artificial light without being that another thorn placed into this young man's skin. And so this chaplain, my supervisor at the time, he said, can I read a psalm with you? And the young man had just sort of burned out his angry words and said, whatever, whatever you want to do. Psalm 82, if you know the Psalms, they're biblical poetry. They're words that were set to music thousands of years ago. Some are like Psalm 23, Psalms of comfort. And some are like Psalm 88, Psalms of lamentation. He started to read this psalm 
My God, why do you hide your face from me? Why do my friends cast me out? I can see my bones sticking through my skin. Almost describing this young man's disease and situation. And then he held his breath. And he read the last words, the last sentence of the psalm. And the darkness is my only friend. And he closed up his Bible. And he saw that this angry young man had tears pouring down his face. He saw his hard countenance soften. And he stayed with him a while more. Patient use only. I think in the deepest level, that is the way that we can bring true light to people who are struggling, not giving them bromides or easy answers, because very often there are not any. But to know that patience allows us to bring true presence. So much of life is learning to hold the darkness that we have with kindness and without judgment, and learning to share the light that is ours gently. Not as something another person has to do or has to feel, but as an offering. It is in many ways to learn to share our light as saying, I will not abandon you. I will be here. And the light that will come will be from our being together. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Gracious source of being. May we learn the capacity for that deep and holy patience. That we might pray with the whole of our hearts, the whole of our hands, the whole of our very lives. To share from that place within us in which there is the true and inner light, which does not blast away another person's darkness, but recognizes that what we share, this kindness, this grace, this true soul, it can be a source of love. It can be a source of healing with everyone that we encounter. Let us remember that light and darkness belong together just as our hearts belong to each other. Amen.